President Mohammed Hosni Mubarak has decided to waive the office of the President of the Republic and instructed the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces to run the affairs of the country. May God guide our steps. Listen to that crowd, that's what they've been waiting for. Hosni Mubarak has gone. As part of our Arab Spring series, we take a look at the events that shook the region at the beginning of 2011 and ask searching questions about where we are now. The Middle East today remains a cauldron of instability, yet the autocrats and their backers have successfully for now subverted a revolution that once filled Arab and Muslims with great hope. Over the coming weeks and months, I hope to interview a range of voices from differing sides of the political and age divide with the hope that collectively we can find some answers. Has the Arab Spring turned into a deep winter? Have the autocrats won? Do we now see a failure of Islamic movements across the world? And if so, what will replace them? Last time I spoke to Dr. Uthman Bakash, an activist and commentator, with his frank assessments of where we are now. I received a lot of feedback from the interview, mostly positive. Some found his conclusion sobering. Others criticised it for being too pessimistic. I suspect most people that have an interest in the Muslim world come to a topic like the Arab Spring with preordained assumptions and absolute conclusions. I hope through these interviews that we can all open our minds to some level of critical analysis because only through this can we move forward and learn the mistakes of this past decade. My guest today is Dr. Azam Tamimi. Dr. Tamimi is a Palestinian academic and activist and has for decades contributed to Islamic and political work. He has authored numerous books detailing his analysis on events in the Muslim world, including his doctoral thesis, which is now published on Amazon on Rashid Ganoushi from Al-Nahda Party, and a detailed history of Hamas. Dr. Tamimi currently hosts a show on Al-Hiwar TV. Dr. Tamimi, it's a pleasure having you with us today. Uh, the Arab Spring began, of course, in 2011, and uh, it uh, led to a lot of optimism, especially amongst, um, I suppose, those who endorse political Islam, which I would imagine you know, you, you would be one of them. And um, uh, it seems to me that the Arab Spring has deteriorated, and uh, we've seen... Tunisia, we've seen uh, Egypt, we've seen Syria, uh, but uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, these countries have not moved forward uh, beyond the dictatorships and petty disputes that they were embroiled in uh, prior to 2011. So I suppose my first question is, uh, how has the Arab Spring uh, developed in your mind and, and is it over uh, uh, well, to start with, uh, I don't like the term political Islam because I don't think it uh, represents anything uh, well-defined. It's a very misleading uh, term, but uh, we'll come uh, back to that uh, maybe afterwards. 
Uh, now, regarding the Arab Spring, now we understand that uh, change in, uh, in the Arab region, probably even in the Muslim world, will not happen in one go. It will happen in stages. Uh, now, it, it is true that uh, there was um, uh, an air of optimism in the beginning. But I think retrospectively, now we, re we realize that the change aspired by the peoples of the, of the region uh, will not happen in one go. It will have to happen in waves or in stages, just like uh, major revolutions in world history uh, did. If, you talk, if we talk about the French Revolution, for instance, or other revolutions in Eastern Europe or in Latin America, they went through many stages. Uh, that have to do with two things, principally. Uh, on the one hand, the l uh, level of awareness among the population uh, of the price that needs to be paid for such a change to take place. Uh, uh, and on the other hand, the balance of power, whether it is local, regional, or international. And I think the balance of power in, uh, in the Middle East has proven to be not in favor of uh, the change. And that's why the counter-revolution managed to crush uh, the Arab Spring. Uh, but that will only be temporary. It, 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 temporary. It will, it, there will be another, another wave. There will be another uh, revival. And what do you think is behind this counter-revolution? At the very start in 2011, there was uh, an era of optimism, as you said, uh, but also the the power on the street was really irreversible. And, and it just seemed to me that um, no dictator, no president, no international body could now stand in the way of people power. So what sorts of forces have coalesced to, uh, to prevent this revolution from bearing fruit? Well, in the beginning, the popular revolution seemed unstoppable, but uh, actually the reality was, different, was something different. Uh, we discovered later on that the deep state was well entrenched, very powerful, that there were uh, so many interest groups within the country, within each of those countries, that didn't want to see a change because a change was detrimental to their own interests. Uh, also, regional powers didn't want a change because uh, uh, they feared that uh, a democratic transition uh, in a big country like Egypt would immediately uh, set a precedent and would attract attention uh, in the rest of the region. Uh, countries like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates were particularly anxious uh, about such, uh, uh, such a likelihood. Uh, and therefore, they paid billions of dollars to local groups who uh, were not in favor of the change. And as a result, uh, the balance of power uh, shifted massively against the popular revolution. Um, of course, there is an international element as well, but I don't think it's a major element. I think uh, uh, world powers uh, outside the region were initially watching, uh, maybe uh, repositioning themselves uh, to deal or to adapt to new realities. And I think America and Europe were prepared to deal with a new reality in which uh, democracies uh, were emerging across the region. But when they saw their own allies 
uh, in Saudi Arabia than Arab Emirates and elsewhere uh, stand in the face of those uh, revolutions, uh, they didn't mind the, uh, that outcome. And that's why they did not protest against the coup in Egypt. Uh, they seemed in certain places like Libya uh, and Yemen uh, to um, uh, collaborate uh, with the uh, anti-revolutionary uh, forces um, because for them maintaining the status quo was a better option. Now I want to go into some specifics. Let's start with Egypt. Firstly, uh, the uh, Mubarak fell and, and uh, in in 2011, and uh, we had an election which led to uh, the overwhelming support for Mohamed Morsi, who became president. But of course, he remained in government for only one year. Now, what went wrong with uh, Mohamed Morsi? Uh, Was he naive about uh, the extent to which he could change the system? Uh, Or were there other forces at play which prevented him from uh, achieving his ends in government? Um, sadly, Morsi perished without uh, giving his testimony. Uh, uh, and that's why much of what people say about him uh, is mere uh, prediction or analysis. Um, even people who uh, were very close to him are either in, still in prison or have perished, or a few of them uh, are scattered around the world. Um, so I think we, we, it, will be, it, it will take some time for us to know the full story. Now, my analysis is that nothing, uh, there is nothing Morsi or the Muslim Brotherhood could have done that would have prevented uh, the coup from taking place. It's, a, it's just a question of, uh, of a balance of power. This is very similar to what happened to Allende in Chile in uh, uh, 1973 an overwhelming uh, local, regional, and international balance of power against change. Um, And I think from what I heard from a few of Morsi's friends is that he was aware of of the risks. But uh, he and the Muslim Brotherhood were faced with very limited choices. They did not start the revolution, but they were forced to lead it. Uh, they didn't want to uh, stand for presidential election, but they were left uh, without uh, choices but uh, to stand uh, uh, and uh, nominate one of them uh, because nobody else wanted to be nominated. Uh, they, that is from their, from their side. They had about six or seven nominees who were not mis- uh, members of the Muslim Brotherhood, but who were uh, uh, trusted uh, individuals as far as, we're, as they were concerned, and none of them uh, agreed. Um, it was the, the, before Morsi was elected, there was a fierce battle taking place behind the scene between uh, the army, the military establishment, uh, and the revolution. And the military establishment uh, wanted to get rid of Mubarak but also wanted to maintain to keep, to remain in control of the revolution so as to produce uh, a president of their choice and to maintain the the, the old regime uh, the election of morsi spoiled it for them and uh, they had to go on the offensive uh, really harsh and in that they were aided by uh, saudi arabia and united arab emirates and eventually even by the western world 
want to understand what was the reluctance behind not standing initially in the presidential elections. I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood for many decades was the most was the strongest Islamic group, the strongest party in Egypt, and had real people power and people support. So why did uh, the Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood, decide that initially, at least, standing in the elections was a, a bad idea? The 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 the, the, mo- the most um, uh, troubling thing for the Muslim Brotherhood was not really the military establishment inside Egypt at the time, not even regional and international powers, but rather partners in the revolution, other partners in the revolution, uh, especially people who. Uh, describe themselves as liberals or people who describe themselves as socialists and Nasserists, all uh, became uh, suspicious of the Muslim Brotherhood and started uh, uh, creating some sort of an image of a group that wanted to, that was only interested in um, stealing the revolution from everybody else. So the Muslim Brotherhood were keen to dispel uh, that sort of uh, illusion. Uh, And that's why they didn't want a president to come from within the Muslim Brotherhood, just to prove that they were not really uh, as uh, as ambitious as uh, the other groups were portraying them. So they uh, came up with uh, what they believe to be a, a, a good solution, Let's nominate someone who is acceptable to everybody, to almost everybody. So they had a list of about six or seven people, and they started contacting them. Uh, the, the Muslim Brotherhood were hoping that the uh, political system in Egypt would become, democ- would become parliamentary rather than presidential, because the Egyptians have always complained uh, from the presidential system in which a president monopolized power and did whatever he wanted. They wanted something similar to the British system where parliament produced government and elected parliament produces an accountable government. Uh, but then they were told by someone in, in the army that no matter what they did, uh, they were not going to, uh, to get what they wanted because the, Supreme, the uh, constitutional court was pre- getting ready to dissolve parliament. So even an elected parliament was going to be uh, dissolved. So they went back to square one and decided to reconsider the presidential option. And when nobody uh, from amongst the uh, friends they nominated uh, wanted to be uh, shortlisted, uh, they decided to nominate one of their own. So initially they nominated Khairat Shatter, but Khairat Shatter uh, was uh, disqualified uh, by the by the court, uh, which was under military uh, influence, and then they uh, they had Morsi uh, uh, as uh, as a reserve candidate, uh, and he eventually ended being elected. And actually, uh, I was really surprised. I didn't expect Morsi to do so well, and I think he was doing so well. That they were that the military were being pressured uh, by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to effect the coup as soon as possible, 
and uh, the defense minister at the time, Sisi, kept saying to them, it's too early. I, I still cannot do it. Uh, give me some more time. Uh, until Mursi nearly completed the first year, they came to the conclusion that if they left Mursi for another year or two, or if he were to complete his term, the successes he was likely to achieve were going to establish democracy beyond uh, uh, any, anybody's attempt uh, to, un, to, un, to undermine it or, un, or undo it. So Mohamed Morsi initially had overwhelming support and, and that's obviously the case. He won the election and um, he became the president of the country. But of course, something changed. Within a year, uh, the optimistic mood turned pessimistic and we had demonstrators out again against uh, Morsi's government and uh, there seemed to be a decline in his uh, in in the quality of of life in Egypt and um, uh, public services were eroding, and so uh, did Mohammed Morsi in a way uh, fail to govern? And 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 is that an indictment then of the Muslim Brotherhood that uh, this organisation that had been out of power for such a long time, uh, when it came to it, uh, they just weren't able to meet the demands, the ordinary demands of the people. Well, the deep state and its supporters in the region and uh, outside the region wanted to create that in- the impression that Morsi was failing. Uh, and that's why uh, state institutions were not functioning. Uh, every effort was being made to, uh, uh, to paralyze the country. Even the police force was not working. Uh, you, you, could, you couldn't see police in the streets. Even traffic wardens were... Uh, staying at home. Um, uh, so he was trying his best uh, in, a, in, a, in a battle that was so fierce and so, um, uh, so in favor of his, uh, of his uh, enemies. So uh, how do we measure success or failure? You measure success or failure uh, on the basis of what obstacles you were facing and you were trying to uh, surmount. Uh, and I think he did very well uh, if we take uh, this, the obstacles he was facing into, uh, into consideration. And I always uh, say that uh, if he was really failing, they should have left him uh, to be exposed so that people uh, would uh, choose willingly uh, to uh, not elect him the next time or... Uh, as they t- took to the streets uh, first, uh, they take us to the streets again and bring down the, the government. But even the uh, 30th of June uh, rallies uh, were staged by the military. Uh, the numbers were exaggerated. Uh, the, Christ- the Coptic uh, church was a principal factor in this because the Copts were, ter- were uh, intimidated and were, uh, inter- were terrified. They were told that if the Muslim Brotherhood ruled Egypt, that would be uh, the beginning of the end of Christianity in Egypt and all sorts of nonsense. The media played a major role because much of uh, the media was funded by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And, uh, they were exploiting the, uh, the, the freedom given to them uh, during Mursi's time uh, to, go, to, to have a go at him. I mean, look at today, for instance. Nobody... 
does mention a word against Sisi inside Egypt without risking being killed or uh, or imprisoned. You can compare the two uh, the two situations. But didn't Morsi represent a a greater goal? Now uh, we may contest the term political Islam, but but of course, the Muslim Brotherhood represented uh, a. Uh, a, a greater ideal, and, and that is to incorporate uh, Islam into uh, normative political life. And um, many believers in, in Egypt voted for Morsi, hoping not just for an improvement in uh, their basic livelihoods and, and, and services. Of course, uh, that's an element of it, but also because they saw Morsi as someone who represented uh, believers and represented Islam. And, and so in his failure, in inverted commas, uh, we may have also seen a, uh, a failure of political Islam. Well, it's, it's totally wrong, of course. You're making assumptions that are totally wrong. There is, there is no failure. How can we say that they failed when there was a coup uh, barely a year after Morsi was in power? Dr. Tamimi, you follow the events really closely and um, uh, you obviously have connections with members of uh, uh, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood on the ground in in Egypt. Um, Can you tell us what the status is of the Muslim Brotherhood? I mean, after the uh, counter coup from uh, uh, Sisi, we we know of the massacres and the mass arrests that took place of uh, Brotherhood members. Uh, is there still a party called the Muslim Brotherhood? And um, can it regenerate in the coming years and contribute to the future of Egypt? Well, at the moment, the Muslim Brotherhood is non-existent in the public domain because they've been banned, um, eradicated nearly. Uh, they're either in prison. There are about 50,000 of them in prison. Uh, and many have been driven underground or uh, driven out of the country. Uh, But that doesn't mean that opposition to the regime uh, is non-existent. It it does exist, and we see from time to time that opposition flare up and uh, people take to the streets uh, despite uh, the uh, heavy uh, crackdown. Right. Uh, Let's turn then to to Syria. Um, Syria, the Syrian revolution again was a hope for, for many. Um, you know, it, it began as a, uh, as a, as a relatively peaceful, as a very peaceful, uh, revolution, uh, civil society actors, uh, marched on the streets and, and asked for an end to the regime. But of course it quickly turned into something other than, uh, what it initially, uh, started as. And, um, I think it's fair to say now that Assad has uh, successfully maneuvered himself into victory. I think two uh, major uh, uh, events uh, resulted in uh, aborting the Syrian revolution. Uh, First, the militarization of the revolution. Uh, That was a fatal mistake. Uh, I personally kept warning against it because this is what... uh, Bashar al-Assad wanted to happen. Uh, he even deliberately released from Sadnaya prison uh, a number of uh, hardcore um, uh, extremists uh, who were previously sent by him actually to Iraq to fight uh, 
against the Americans uh, because he knew those those guys were extremely militant. Uh, they knew only one way to oppose the regime, and that is to uh, carry arms. Uh, Saudi Arabia also released a number of its hardcore extremists from prison upon the condition that they head to Syria, and they ended up in Syria. So there was uh, a col collaborative effort uh, to militarize the revolution so that Bashar al-Assad's claim that he was fighting terrorism would stand and would provide him with a justification to invite in the Iranians and the Russians, which changed uh, the game uh, completely. Um, and that's why a year after the Syrian revolution, we started seeing even Western positions change. I remember initially the British, the French, many European uh, countries were in favor of the revolution. The British themselves encouraged many Muslim Britons to go to Syria, uh, either to provide aid or provide whatever it is. They were not really against fighting the regime in whatever way. But then uh, the Americans stepped in a year later, and I think pressured the Europeans to change their position, first because the revolution had been militarized, and secondly because the fall of the regime would pose a threat to Israel because it would create a vacuum that nobody knew who would uh, rush into filling it. So Israel was the, was the main concern for the Western powers. Um, the second thing that happened is the coup in Egypt. Uh, the coup in Egypt ended uh, the Arab uh, dream in uh, peaceful transition to democracy. Uh, and uh, that's why immediately after the coup in Egypt uh, in July 2013, uh, Daesh or ISIS emerged. Uh, prior to that, there were remnants of Al-Qaeda here and there. But then ISIS came out uh, in force because uh, the abortion of the peaceful march towards a change in the region uh, provided uh, ISIS and uh, every other militant with the uh, uh, powerful justification that uh, peaceful uh, efforts don't work, uh, only uh, carrying arms uh, works. So this is what uh, what led to the, uh, to the to the catastrophe that we see in Syria today. Is it right to say, Dr. Tamimi, that ISIS has left an indelible mark on um, the Muslim masses? Um, ISIS uh, created what what it called its self-styled caliphate, and um, uh, it professed to uh, rule by Sharia, and um, as a result. Um, international public opinion, if it wasn't uh, antagonistic towards Islam, it's, 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 so, it's, it's very much so now. Uh, but not only, not only opinion in, in Western countries, uh, even in Muslim countries, many Muslims now find the idea of an Islamic party or an Islamic form of governance to be unbearable uh, because of the forces it may unleash well, ISIS is a phenomenon that uh, is not unprecedented in the history of Islam. It's a, it's a very um, uh, violent protest movement. And the violent protest movements exist, uh, have existed throughout history. And now to blame uh, Islam or Muslims or other Islamic movements for what uh, ISIS uh, 
portrayed or has done uh, is a grave injustice because ISIS considered the Muslim Brotherhood to be infidels. Uh, did not believe uh, they were representatives of uh, Islam, did not accept uh, their um, adherence to peaceful democratic uh, means of change. Uh, and and I, I think ISIS at one at one uh, at one stage was uh, uh, an opportunity for many regimes in the region to manipulate it for their own ends uh, until it became clear that uh, it wasn't possible to manipulate it uh, uh, anymore because if you uh, touch it, you you burn your hands because of their violence because of their extremism. Uh, etc. But initially, uh, they were infiltrated by different uh, intelligence agencies in the region, and each intelligence agency was seeking to influence the decision making within uh, the top ranks of ISIS. And th that uh, might have worked uh, initially, but uh, eventually it didn't work. So, in in the Muslim countries, we now have. Um... Uh, large populations that are young, um, some say in, in Arab countries, 60% of the Muslim masses are now under the age of 25. And um, these populations are looking for um, uh, prospects, they're looking for um, uh, uh, some part to play in, in their country's future. Uh, they're, um, uh, they're seeking to um, uh, establish a better a better country for themselves and um i suppose uh, you know the syrian revolution was was a, a youthful revolution and for all the reasons you explained uh it's it's now uh been ultimately unsuccessful uh, do you see any hope for the arab world in the near in the near future well definitely there is a lot of hope and i'm always hopeful as i mentioned earlier change will take place in stages or in phases. And we've seen uh, one phase. Now we are, we are witnessing the beginning of the second phase. Uh, look at what has happened in Algeria, in Sudan, and now in Lebanon, recently also in Egypt. This will not stop. Uh, and I think the young generation is learning lessons. People are learning lessons. Uh, Algeria, for instance, which saw uh, in the uh, late 90s um, uh, bloodshed that lasted for nearly a decade and the loss of no less than a quarter of a million lives. Um, I think that the new generation has come out with a, a clear lesson that only peaceful demonstrations and peaceful protests uh, uh, can, can deliver. Um, we saw the same thing in Sudan. Now we are seeing it in Lebanon. Um, eventually this will spread elsewhere simply because dictatorship is making things worse across the region. There will not be development, there will not be any progress anywhere in the Arab world without freedom. People are fighting for their freedom now. Let them have their freedom and then decide what sort of governments they want, what sort of laws uh, they want to be ruled by. Uh, the Muslim world, or the Arab world in particular, has been deprived of freedom since colonial times. Uh, and this is what the fight is about today. It's about freedom. But is this at, at the expense of uh, Islam? Um, I mean, it, it seems to me that uh, the recent experiences of the Muslim world, whether it's the 
uh, the the short-lived experience of of Egypt and the Morsi government, or uh, the the way by which ISIS has been characterised in its uh, its ultimate repression, uh, this has left a, a a mark upon the Muslim masses. But uh, you can call for change, but that change cannot have an Islamic character. And so, do you see the future in in the Arab world, or? Uh, to be one where Islam is left out of the narrative. Islam can only uh, flourish uh, in an atmosphere of freedom. Uh, and this is a challenge. Why uh, are these dictators not allowing people to have their freedom? These masses are Muslim, overwhelmingly Muslim. I have no fear for Islam or for, for the Muslims. Let them choose freely, even if they make a choice which is un-Islamic. Islam will come back. Uh, we, uh, the, 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 much of the Arab world has succumbed to secularism, not out of choice. It has succumbed to forms of liberalism, not out of choice. Liberalism in, in, in really very, very crude terms, not uh, in terms of freedoms. Uh, to forms of socialism, not out of choice. Let us have the choice and let people elect their governors, elect their representatives. But is, is there another tendency in the Muslim world that we need to be uh, more wary of? And that is the strong man imposing social and economic liberal reforms and in the process uh, creating some level of superficial uh, prosperity. Capitalism flourishes for a period. And that young population that has uh, felt that repression calm down and, and, and begin to see that these reforms are having a positive impact on their lives. And if, if for example, in Saudi Arabia, the strong man is, is uh, imposing uh, social and economic liberal reforms, um, and ultimately, if he's successful, doesn't that set back any project for Islam in the region? Well, had there been reform, yes, but there is no reform in Saudi Arabia. Do you have uh, one man who uh, yells whoever uh, disagrees with him, who uh, takes, uh, who seizes the properties and the wealth of uh, people uh, he uh, perceives as a threat uh, to his own power? Uh, the only liberalization he is allowing is uh, uh, concerts. Uh, and this, this is just ridiculous. Uh, apart from that, uh, even women who fought for the right to drive cars are today in prison. Uh, so there's really nothing good about the policies adopted by Mohammed bin Salman today. So uh, eventually Saudi Arabia will explode. In the past, Saudi Arabia adopted a form of a very strict religiosity that was imposed on the population. And that backfired. It doesn't work. You cannot, you cannot impose Islam. Islam has to be by conviction, by, by, by choice. Uh, there is no compulsion on religion. Anybody, any government, any authority that seeks to compel Islam on the people will, will, uh, will fail. Now he is compelling something, the opposite of Islam on the people. And, and, and neither will work. It won't work. I'm interested in an earlier point you made about political Islam. So when I use that term, you uh, you found that uh, somewhat problematic. I mean, and why do you find the term a problem? 
People who coined the term political Islam assume that there are forms of Islam, that there is social Islam, that there is, uh, I don't know, economic Islam, there is political Islam, there is apolitical Islam. This is nonsense. And, uh, any reading of the Quran will tell you that Islam is a way of life. Politics is part of life. Economics is part of life. Uh, social order is, is, is part of life. Islam is all of this. Islam is, uh, is a set of uh, moral, uh, is, a, is, a, is a code of morality uh, governing all aspects of life. Uh, so to assume that uh, a group like the Muslim Brotherhood uh, is only representative of an aspect of Islam, but not the rest of Islam, uh, is intended to portray it in, in a negative way. This is one thing. The other thing is that the, the term political Islam combines contradictions together. ISIS is part of political Islam, uh, and we saw what ISIS uh, does to others. Uh, whereas the Muslim Brotherhood, for instance, believes in democracy, believes in um, uh, moderate, gradual uh, reform. So how can you put all of this in, uh, in, in, uh, in one basket? To the extent that, as a, uh, that in the aftermath of the coup in Egypt, so many uh, uh, so-called Islamists wanted to, um, to stay away from the term political Islam, claiming that they had nothing to do with it, that they were never uh, uh, part of it. And this is really a term that is used to intimidate uh, others. And in a recent interview, Dr. Tamimi, you mentioned that the Sykes-Picot borders that um, currently divide the Muslim world are irrelevant and superficial, and uh, they, these entities are, are very, uh, are very weak and, and and don't really define the mindset of the current Muslim Ummah. Uh, can you explain what you meant by that? They are. Uh, these entities were created, were carved uh, by the colonial powers. Um, there are no natural borders between these states. The same peoples live everywhere. Look at my, my own tribe, for instance, the Tamimis. We are all over the place, from Iraq all the way to Morocco, uh, from the Persian Gulf to the Atlantic Ocean, and there are and all sorts of other uh, tribes as well. Um, I, I, and my, my uh, conviction is that once uh, the peoples of the region have their freedom, one of the things, one of the, the things they will be looking uh, up to do is remove these borders. I mean, if the Europeans with all their different languages and different cultures and different uh, histories came together and created the European Union, despite Brexit <laughs> and what's likely to happen uh, after Brexit, now, we, the Arabs, uh, we generally, the, 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 the populations of that, of that region, have been without borders for centuries. Uh, and it's humiliating for us to be separated in this way. Not only that, the entities created by the colonial powers, especially the British and the French, uh, between the First War and the Second World, uh, the, the First World War and the Second World War, uh, were designed so that in one place you have lots of population but very few resources, while in other places you have so much resources but no populations. I mean, look at the, uh, at, at, at the oil countries. 
they, they are sparsely uh, they are uh, scarcely populated uh, to the extent that uh, three quarters if not more uh, uh, of their populations are imported labor uh, forces from uh, from southeast asia from south asia from africa from elsewhere whereas a country like egypt which has 100 million uh, uh, population uh, does not have uh, much resources so if you if you imagine that one day we have the united arab states or the united states of the middle east without borders and we have all these resources whether they are water resources or oil resources or other minerals where we have a big market we have uh, a huge uh, um, source of uh, talent uh, as well we this this is potentially a, a great superpower and the, the the reason why the status quo is favorable for western powers is because changing it will potentially uh, allow the emergence of a competitive uh, uh, superpower in that part of the world creating a a, a competitive superpower in in uh, the muslim world uh, would of course uh, raise alarm bells in in washington and and other western capitals do you believe that they would even permit um any tendency towards Arab or Muslim unification? It doesn't matter what the Americans or the Europeans or the Russians or the Chinese want. It doesn't matter because they are after their own, their own interests and they see their own interests in their own way. I think what really matters is what we want uh, to happen to us. And that's why uh, initially in 2011, uh, the Americans and the Europeans had no option, had no choice but to welcome the change happening in the region and to begin uh, accommodating it and, uh, and adapting uh, to it. If we, the peoples of the Arab world, choose to be free and choose to uh, be united and choose to be independent, the rest of the world will have no choice but to deal with us. I mean, look at America and China. Of course, they are competing powers, but they, they, they play it in, uh, in the realm of economics and realm of politics. The same with Russia and Europe or Russia and the United States of America. So nothing will happen to the world if uh, we are united and, uh, and we emerge as a power. Eventually, we will have to deal uh, with the world. And I think if the Western world in particular is, uh, cured from its misconceptions about Islam and the Muslims, we will end up having a much better world than the one uh, we are living in today. I mean, these are certainly weighty issues, the issue of unification. And, and of course, for such plans to be considered, there needs to be a, an open discussion and debate in the Muslim world about that. And um, space needs to be created for that. And, and, you know, if anything, the space is shrinking in Muslim societies, not increasing. Uh, and then there's a broader context. Of course, uh, we can't um, divorce the Muslim world from uh, the international great powers and the forces at play in America at the moment, especially under Trump. But uh, going forward, I think under uh, all political hues, uh, prefers a Muslim world that lives under the strong men uh, who 
ruled by fear. No, it's not the Americans that are the problem, in my opinion. The problem are the despots, the uh, minority uh, authoritarian regimes across the Muslim world. These corrupt rulers uh, don't want to lose the privileges they've managed to, um, to, they managed to gain uh, throughout uh, the past uh, years by enslaving the entire population. And that's why we had the Arab Spring. That's why people are rising up and revolting and rebelling because they want their freedom. Uh, the first wave was crushed. There will be a second wave and there will be a third wave uh, until the peoples of the region are free. I do make uh, a distinction between the overwhelming majority of the people of the Middle East uh, and the minority uh, elites that uh, govern them by force. Uh, of course, those who are in power don't want a change to happen. And they use everything at, the, at their disposal in order to prevent it. But eventually, the flood of the masses will sweep them away. But of course, the, these minority elites, um, you know, have behind them, I mean, you know, of course, not in a, in a conspiratorial way, but, but of course, have support from Western powers. And, and that level of support enables them to uh, commit their crimes. I mean, Sisi uh, would not have got away with uh, half of what he did without the tacit approval of both the Obama and Trump administrations. Just think about Mohammed bin Salman and, and uh, his, uh, the approval he gains from uh, the, uh, the Americans. I mean, he can kill a, a journalist in an embassy in, in, in a, uh, a, another country uh, and uh, uh, things are business as usual, and, and he is, he's, his image took a, a, a slight blip, but it, it's, back to, uh, it's back to business as usual in, on the international scale. So there seems to be um, you know, a connection between Western powers and, and these uh, corrupt elites uh, that plague the Muslim world. Of course there is a connection, because... Western powers believe that these despots are uh, their uh, best choice. Uh, but if that choice is no longer available, they will have to go to a second <laughs> best choice. And I think it's up to us, up to the masses. And Sisi is in power today, not because of the Americans, not because of the Obama administration, and not because of the Trump administration. He is in power today because uh, the elites in Egypt came together to. Uh, suppress the Muslim Brotherhood because they were somehow convinced at one stage that the Muslim Brotherhood were the enemy. Uh, they preferred a military dictatorship to a democracy ruled uh, by an Islamic movement. And now people have, are learning the lesson. It doesn't matter who comes through the ballot box. Whoever comes through the ballot box will go through the ballot box. But those who come through bullets will not go easily. And finally, Dr. Tamimi, um, uh, from this discussion, I, I, can, I can tell that you remain very optimistic about the future of the Muslim world. <laughs> I am a Muslim. And uh, a Muslim has to be an optimist. We are in this world on a mission, a mission of making it a righteous world, calling to the way of Allah, um, advising people to uh, 
renounce evil, enjoin the good, and forbid the bad. This is our mission. This is what we are here in this life for. Eventually, we are going to die. This life is temporary. It's very short compared to what comes afterwards. And therefore, we have to continue the struggle. Nothing puts, at, puts us off. Nothing makes us uh, desperate or pessimistic. It's a struggle. It's a continuous struggle. And what we see today is part of that struggle. And as I told you earlier, uh, there was one wave, there will be a second wave, and probably a third wave, until things are put right again across the Muslim world. Next time we speak to Iyad al-Baghdadi and get his perspectives on the Arab Spring, uh, a commentator and activist that many of you uh, would know of. Uh, but until next week, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.